Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, See that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Well, this morning we return to the first part of Revelation chapter 22. Sometimes we take parts of God's word in larger portions and sometimes in smaller. And here as we come to the end of this great book, it is indeed very dense and we take it a little bit uh, slower, not not dense in terms of being opaque and unable to see, but dense in all the wonderful things that are there and the treasures that we find. Now, this chapter being the end of the Bible, it's just like the end of any of the well, the greatest book that you could possibly conceive, any work of man. As you come to the end of some great book, there are a lot of loose ends that need to be tied up. There are a lot of finding out what happened to this and to that, these things that were suggested at some earlier point, and you wonder how they're going to turn out. 
And we've already seen some of that. We've seen with regard to the water of life, the river of the water of life and, and the tree of life, this thing that we hadn't seen since the Garden of Eden and in all of human history, we hadn't seen it. And here we find it again. It wasn't forgotten about. It was there. And here I think we come to something even greater. If it's possible from where we were in 21, there's, it's an escalation, in fact, of the greatness of the things of which we are given and seen. And here this thing that we're particularly thinking about, that our attention is drawn to, is what we have in verse 4, that they shall see his face. That's the great thing. That is the great summary, indeed, of what we, the privileges that we have in the new heavens and the new earth, that we shall see his face. Now, of course, man was created to have communion with the Lord. What were these eyes created for, in some sense, other than to behold God in various ways, in these ears to hear his word, in these, these mouths to sing his praise? That's what we were created to do, to have communion with him. But sadly, we lost that. In the fall, in, in sin, we were thrown out of that garden. We were thrown out of the presence of God. And far from then experiencing his presence and his face and seeing his face directly and immediately, we were closed out of his presence entirely. And what we experienced then as a human race from that point on was primarily him as judge, as one who has hid his face from his sinful people. Now, of course, most were glad as well, as we see even a hint of an Adam and Eve running away and hiding from the presence of God. Most were very glad for that. Most, in fact, were hardened in their sin and their hatred of God. They were glad to hide themselves from God as much as God was hiding his face from them. But there are some who, by the grace of God, thought differently, some who would greatly desire to see God. And in Scripture, we find those who, in, under the spirit of and the inspiration of God, expressed their great hope that one day they would see God because they understood that this was to be the greatest of blessing. They understood that this was the highest and greatest of all possible things. This is what is called the beatific vision, the blessed vision of seeing God. But having hid himself from us, only God could make that possible. There's no way that we could possibly climb our way into the presence of God, force our way into seeing him. It is impossible. But God himself made a way for that. God himself could reveal himself. God himself could make a way that we could re-enter his presence and see him. And that is the summary of the great work of redemption. That is the story of how that was made possible, of bringing sinners to a place where they could see God. Well... In some sense, I don't know what to add to this wonderful verse we have in Revelation 22. They shall see his face. But I suppose there are these three things that I want you to know, of, of which I wish I could convey this morning. That first of all, to see God is the greatest of all things. We've got to, to, to recognize that. We've got to some, come to some understanding of that because we in our situation sometimes don't have the right taste for things. We sometimes are satisfied with lesser things, and we don't really consider the greatness of, of spiritual things. But this is truly the greatest of all. And secondly, it is impossible to do it. It is impossible to see God. And that throughout Scripture, we are reminded of this, that we as sinners, and in, and in some sense, in more fundamentally way, that we 
cannot see God. Yet somehow, thirdly, those who are in the new heavens and the new earth, those who are called the servants of God, those who have been brought into that place, they will see God's face. That is the absolute assurance of God's word to us. So let us consider this greatest of topics. And first, I want you to see that if you were to see God, that would be the greatest of all things. It truly would be. Now, of course, there's many places where there is some hint. I would say one of the clearest places that we might have about this would actually be in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Remember in Matthew 5, 8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, there are many other things, there are many other Beatitudes. That's why it's called that. It's just a Latin word for being blessed. And blessed are they that that, blessed are they that that, blessed that they, and so on and so on. But this is the high point of all that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And in some sense, what else does our Lord have to say? What ounce, What greater privilege could there possibly be? There's nothing on, in, on earth, there's nothing in heaven that could be greater than that. But I have to say something here to get us to, to see that. I guess one thing, the obvious and first thing, is because he's eternal God. Just as we would be so grateful, just as we would take it as a great privilege to meet and spend time with uh, some very famous person, some very worthy person, much more so the queen, for instance, or a member of the royal family would be glad to do that. We'd be glad to see their face with our own eyes. We'd be glad to be in their presence. Well, of course, much, much more so because of who God is. He is the eternal God. He is not like anything that we have on earth. He's not temporal. He doesn't come and go. He's, he's eternal God. That's the thing that I think is mentioned in Job 19, one of the very earliest books of the Bible. And we have this, this hope that Job has in his great trials, in his flesh being destroyed before his eyes as well as with his children being taken from him and all of his possessions destroyed. What does he say in Job 19.26? After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Now, I would say, as an aside, that it tells us a little bit something, how his heart yearns within him at the moment of the greatest of trials. And he is given to us as a picture of the severe trials of God. I, if you were to concoct a scenario in which, in, in, aside from the re, results of, of your own sin and being under that judgment of things that could happen to you on this earth, what more could there be than for all of his possessions to be taken away? He was a man of great wealth. And then for his children to be taken away. And then for his health to be utterly taken away. And to be there on the ash heap in, in great disease, hideous to behold, having nothing in this life, even his, his wife saying you ought to curse God and die. At that moment, he has this great yearning to see God. And maybe, just maybe, there's a relationship between those things. Maybe, just maybe, we have trials sometime to wean us from the things of this world that we so often set our hearts and affections on and we don't really think about God much. But you could imagine if you were in that situation, the thought of being in the blessed presence of God and to see him with your own eyes 
would be a most amazing thing. Well, what else about God? What else makes this such a wonderful thing? It's, it's, it's endless, but of course because he's beautiful. We want to see beautiful things. When we go places, when we want to tour, we don't want to see ugly things unless you, I don't know, perhaps you're a, uh, an architect and just are curious about things. You don't care about seeing the communist bloc apartments in Eastern Europe. You're not there to see those things. If you go to Durham, hopefully you want to see Durham Cathedral because it's, it's beautiful. And people want to see beautiful people. And of course that can be distorted into something, something evil. But the reality is that there is within us a desire to see beautiful things and indeed of beautiful people made in his image. Well, God is the most beautiful. And that's probably seen the greatest way in, in the Song of Solomon. And in that book, in chapter 2, verse 14, it says, O my dove, in the clefts of the rock and the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Now we know that this is, a, a, uh, in some sense, it is God's use of this dialogue of, of human love, but it points us to something far greater than that. It points us to the love of Christ, uh, the love that is between Christ and his church. And there's a reality for those who are in Christ to see the loveliness of him, a desire to want to hear his voice and to want to see his face. Why? Because he's beautiful. In, in him, he is more lovely than a thousand, right? He is the rose of, of Sharon. He is the most beautiful thing that can be imagined, and particularly in his holiness. Now, we think, of course, of pure physical beauty, and sometimes it's hard for us to imagine what some other kind of beauty is like, but you have to think of the opposite. You have to think about the most despicable criminal or, or one who has... Um, done in, in every way, who is a, a liar and a thief and a murderer and sexually immoral and, and one who perhaps uh, is in, in prison for a very long thing for doing terrible things and how much you would not want to spend time with him. You wouldn't care at all to have a conversation with him because it only, it only spew out hate and, and terrible sinful things. You wouldn't want to look upon his face because it would be a face of cruelty and ugliness, distorted in, in every way. You wouldn't want to be around such a person. Well, now take that in the opposite direction. And what you're thinking of is the beauty of holiness. That sort of beauty, by the way, is something that people, no matter how old you are, sometimes, in fact, that's the very case that it is, that you grow in holiness. It's the way it's designed to be. You grow in holiness. As you age as a Christian, as you become more and more like him, so that the physical beauty fades away, but the moral and the, the, the beauty of holiness, we have a little light of that, is given to us. That's the way it's supposed to work at least. Well, Christ is surely beauty, beautiful in his holiness. The Lord God says in and uh, or many places in God's word say what Psalm 29.2 says, Give unto the Lord the glory, do his name, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Because you always have to have grist for worship. You don't, that's something we, we have to understand. We don't just worship God and, and you just, without any further content, okay, worship God. No, there's got to be some sort of content. There's got to be some sort of motivation for worship in that. And he says, worship God in what? 
the beauty of holiness. Yes, because God has given us somewhere a right desire, a a right understanding for beauty, a right appreciation of it. And of course, again, if we're not careful, we make idols and we bow down to those and we worship them because they have some beauty. Don't do that. But rather worship God and the beauty of his holiness. Now we do that in a sort of, in a, a step removed from him, in seeing him in his word, we see him truly, but we don't see his face. But if we could see that beautiful face, surely that would be the greatest of all things. Now furthermore, it says to be in the presence of, of God is the essence of all joy and happiness, like in Psalm 1611. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Now, you might say that maybe this works in the the sense of, I I don't know, of um, coming to someone who has many gifts, and because he gives you these gifts, then therefore you're happy. And you come and you don't really even look at him. You're, you're just waiting for that gift because he's the source of, of goodness and good things and fun things and, and so forth. And, but that's not what it's saying, of course. He's not just handing you things to enjoy outside of himself, but rather in his presence. Because you are in his presence, that is what is so joyful. Being around him is what means that there's fullness of joy. You are enjoying him. Because he is so lovely and so beautiful in his holiness. And it is such a wonderful thing. Well, that's why it says in the first question of our catechism, what what are we supposed to do? People always ask, what is the purpose of life? Well, it's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You don't enjoy the things that come from him. You do, yes, truly, but mainly. And when we have anything that good whatsoever, we should always give him thanks for that. But the ultimate part of that is to enjoy him forever and that is the summary of all blessedness of all goodness of things to be desired it is the greatest of things to see him now it's a great thing by the way in another sense it's so difficult we have that uh, just many places uh, uh, think of Jacob in when he wrestled with with uh, the Lord when the angel of the Lord came and he wrestled with him And he said, uh, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. He was amazed at that. The thought of seeing God face to face and that he's still alive was an amazing thing to him. It's a great thing in that sense as well. Because you might say, you know, there are some, in our pleasure-driven and entertainment-driven society, there are pleasurable and fun things that can be had for the right money. You can go to an amusement park if you have the money. You can fly to Orlando and you can go to, to Disney World all you want. Anyone can do that. It just takes a little money. I wouldn't say it's a great thing to do that. But in God's word, it makes it very clear that this is a great thing. Not given to everyone. Not easy to do. And in fact, as we're going to see secondly, it is impossible. It is impossible to see God. There, John 1.18, as we think of this one man, the Apostle John, who is used to pen both the, uh, the Gospel of John and also the letters of John and also the book of Revelation. He says, right in the beginning of the Gospel of John, no one has seen God at any time. John 1.18, no one has seen him. 
Now that should be enough for us to say it's impossible if no one's ever done it. This is a great thing indeed. It's not at all like going to Disney World. Lots of people have done that. Millions of people have done that. No one has seen God at any time. And in fact, I think you can see something more of that in in Exodus. When you have this man, Moses. Now, the Lord was very close with Moses, wasn't he? Moses was given privileges that very few on this earth have ever given those privileges. He says, in fact, you need to understand that my relationship with him is not like my relationship with you or with others. I speak to him. With others, I speak maybe in a dream or a vision, some sort of mediated way. But with him, I speak face to face. Like a man speaks to his friend, and you'd say, well, then, then he's seen the face of God. And no, it's only an expression to mean that in his presence, they're able to speak and hear one another. Because when Moses gets around to asking the thing that he really wants... He wants to see God, not just the flashes of light, not just the the smoke, not just to hear his voice, which is obviously wonderful. He's not satisfied with that. He wants the one great thing that's left. He wants to actually see God. And as as, uh, accommodating, wonderfully accommodating that the Lord is, he can't do that. Notice what it says, Exodus 33, 18. And he said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he says in verse 20, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. No man shall see me and live. It is impossible even for this closest of, of, of earthly associates for this prophet, priest, and king who is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ of Moses, the one who you may remember in the Mount of Transfiguration, he's there. And he's conversing with Christ in his glory. He says, you can't see my face. But I'll tell you what I'll do. The Lord says, here's a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, and so it shall be while my glory passes by that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And I'll take away my hand, You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now you see something of how a great thing this is. That the Lord, even in his goodness and his grace and his kindness to this one man, Moses, who was brought closer than anyone, certainly in the Old Testament, says, you can't see my face. No man can see my face. I'll let you see some, some other part, just a little bit, a glimpse for a moment, but you can't see my face and live. Hmm. And as I, I say, moreover, this is repeated. No man has seen God at any time. Um, John repeats this in 1 John 4.12. No one has seen God at any time. And you start to wonder, you know, uh, well, maybe, uh, maybe he forgot about that somehow when he's writing Revelation that he momentarily forgot the other things he wrote. No man has seen God. You can't see God and so forth. Indeed, what it says, and in, in, funny enough, um, in the end of the letters of John, John says in Third John one eleven, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who has, does evil has not seen God, as if that were somehow possible thing. He who does evil has not seen God. Well, I want to just say, I'll leave that for the moment. 
But I want to say this, it is impossible to see God for two different reasons, okay? The first reason has to do with the nature of God. And that reason is that God is a spirit, okay? God is a spirit and he doesn't have a body. When we speak of God the Father, he, he does not have a body. He is not incarnate. There is no particular um, bodily presence in that way. There is a presence of the Lord, but it's not physical. It's not material. Our, our confession and all Orthodox creed make it very clear. The spirituality of God he doesn't have a body. And so therefore, with bodily eyes, no one could possibly see this invisible God. That's the thing. But it's impossible in a deeper and more important sense because of sin. Obviously, there must have been some way, even though God is invisible. God the Father doesn't have a body. He's spiritual, can't be seen. Yet somehow his presence was mediated in Eden. But the big problem, the real problem, was our sin that made sure that we couldn't see him, that we were cast out of his presence, that he hid his face from us. That's the thing. You see, sin brings this judgment of separation. God judges us and says, look, we've, we've said now, I hope we understand that the greatest of blessing, the thing that there's nothing more than to be desired. If you've been given every privilege on earth, the one thing you're still going to want to see is the face of God, just like Moses. That's the one thing you still want to see. And once you've seen that, there's nothing more. There's joy forevermore in that. There's nothing more to be had. If that's the case then, in God's judgment on sin, he's going to take that away. Surely he's going to take that away. And that's exactly what we have in the Old Testament. And in, in Isaiah 59 too, your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you. Your sins have hidden his face from you. He hides his face. You can't see it. Jeremiah 33, 5. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with dead bodies of men whom I will slay in my anger and fury, all for whose wickedness I have hidden my face from the city. So there's both an individual and a corporate sense of God's uh, people being under judgment. And the greatest summary of that judgment is God says, I have hid my face. So if seeing God's face is the greatest of blessing, God hiding his face from you, his beneficent, beautiful presence, his face from you, that's the greatest of curses. Of course, we know, of course, there's another component for those in hell that his face is seen, but it's not the beneficent, loving, joyful presence. It's his wrathful presence. God says he hides his face because of our sin. Ezekiel 39:24 According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions I've dealt with them and hidden my face from them because that's the bigger in some sense problem. God it's one thing if God has endeavored if God has decided to do what is impossible because God can do such things. God can make us to see him somehow if he so chose. But when God says I don't choose that I choose rather to hide my face from you sinners. I deny you this blessing. I am not going to be, I have, I'm more holy than to behold, to put my face, to look upon those who are unclean and sinful and wicked. And I will therefore hide my face from you. Then there's no getting beyond that. There's nothing to be done there. 
In Micah 3, 4, they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will, not, he will hide his face from them at that time because they've been evil in their deeds. Yet, that's our situation. And not one of us, we've all, we've all sinned. We're all in that category. Yet, somehow, in our text, in Revelation 22, we are told that the inhabitants of the new heavens and the new earth will see the face of God. In verse 3, there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face. They shall see his face somehow. It must be true, because the Bible goes on to say, by the way, and not for the first time and not quite for the last time. In Revelation 22, 6, then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. He wants to remind us, as impossible as it might seem, these words are faithful and true. In some sense, they're too good to be true. How could it be that God is going to show his face to such sinners? Those who have been cast out of his presence, how are they going to see the face of the living God, the holy God, the source of all blessing and joy? And yet he says, I want you to know these things are true. You've got to believe them. It's going to happen. Now we can thankfully know something of how it happens. We said that there are two problems, right? God's a spirit, he doesn't have a body, and we're sinners. Well, the solution to that first problem, the how, is in Christ. Colossians 1.15 says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. If God, the Father, is inherently invisible... The amazing thing about God, the Son, is that he has taken on human flesh. And that therefore, he who was invisible, he who no one has ever seen, he is able to be seen. Now, by the way, we've mentioned many times that this image of the invisible God on earth, it wasn't a physical thing. In some sense, there was even a disconnect. Yes, he had human flesh. And when you were beholding Christ, you were, when you looked upon Jesus of Nazareth, you were in some sense seeing the face of God. But people couldn't recognize anything. It was just an ordinary human face. It looked like anyone else in the crowd. There is nothing, no beauty that we should desire him. And if there's no beauty, then we know that we're not, then there, there's something that's still being hid there. We're not really seeing the face of God in all of its fullness if there's no beauty that we should desire him in, in this human face. And we say that rather at that time, the way that he was to be seen were the words that he said and the deeds that he did. And in those ways, we saw in the the whole working out of, of the gospel, we saw truly the face of God in those things. And these are things that I can tell you. These are things that are in the Bible. And these are the things by which we can see him even now. But in the transfiguration, there was something different, wasn't there? Then, then there was some beauty that we might desire him. Luke nine twenty eight to 29, it came to pass, eight days after this saying, he took Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain and prayed. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. Now, how did it become altered? Well, in the other account of this in Matthew 17, it says he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. There's the beauty. There's the glory of God, you see. The beauty is the glory of God. Something that was hid on Christ when he, in his state of humiliation, for all this one exception, 
But these extremely blessed members of the inner circle of the disciples get to see him in his glory. And they don't want to go anywhere else. They don't, they're not looking at their watches. When is this sermon going to be over? They're not thinking about that. They're making tents. They want to set up shop. They want to live there forever and not do a single other thing because it is such a wonderful thing to be in the presence of this glorious Lord Jesus Christ through whose face we see the invisible God. We see his beauty and they want to be there. We can see the face of God because we can see it in Jesus Christ in his glory. There in a, in a glance, we see what it takes many, many words to describe and we never fully get to it here. We say what he's done. We say what he's, these glorious words that he's spoken that no one ever, ever spoke, these deeds that he's done, this holiness, he's sinless. And we see in some sense his glory. But there in heaven, Christ with his unveiled face, we're able to behold him and to see in a moment all that is beautiful and all that is to be desired in this perfect holiness and glory. 1 Corinthians 13, 10. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. When I under, and I understood as a child. I thought as a child. And when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as also I am known. You see, at the very beginning of this book of Revelation, John gets to see, one more time, this greatly privileged man who saw who was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's Peter, John, and James. He gets to see Christ again in his glory. And you see him described in chapter 1 as this one with this, these shining robes and this beautiful shining face and these eyes that are as a flame of fire. And in Revelation 10, I saw another, and we spoke of this mighty angel, and we think that this is another description of Christ. This mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed the cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And it is perhaps for those, sometimes we have to say that we don't receive all that is in Scripture. Sometimes, just even by mere things of geography, we're talking about the beauty of a river. We don't, maybe we don't fully understand living in a place that we do, how wonderful a source of water is. Maybe it's not quite as clear to us that there might be a desert and only where there's a source of water would there be trees, living trees around where there'd be fruit, as we saw last time of this tree of life. But maybe there's one thing that we can't understand and that's the glory of the sun. For those who have long been deprived of the light of the sun... We start to forget what it's like to see the glorious sun. That's what the face of Christ is described like. Like the beauty of the sun for those who have been without light. That answers one question. But as we move to apply these things to ourselves, it didn't answer quite the second question, right? That's how we can see the invisible God. We can see him in Jesus Christ, who is incarnate, who has a body. He took on human flesh, and now that flesh is glorified. But what about the sense of sin? As we go back to that wonderfully 
powerful and brief little statement in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, if you happen to be pure in heart, I'm sure that's good news for you. What if you're not? What if you're wicked in heart? What if you're impure? What if you're defiled? What if you're in that category? What's for you? Well, we know by nature what's for you is cursing. Cursed are the impure in heart. For they shall be in hell forever. They shall experience the wrathful presence of God. That's what is for us. But having said that there's a way in Christ, the way in Christ is not only that he has a body and that we can see him, but of what he has done in order that there might be those around that could enjoy this beautiful Savior. You see, the work of redemption, this work of incarnation that he could come and be around us was not merely so that he himself would have this body so that human eyes could see and, and no one would be in heaven. He didn't do this work. He didn't, didn't die on the cross and pay for sins for no purpose. Some people think that. Some people think that there is no guarantee of success here. It was just a risky venture. And, and hopefully some people would put their faith in Christ. But no, it's not like that. Christ actually paid for our sins. Actually paid for them. In order that we might be with him in heaven. That's the, the reality of how it is that those who are wicked, those who are defiled, those who are sinful in heart, those, that's the way that we're going to be able to see God. You know, funny enough, Matthew 18.10, we, we say these things, the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. Well, what's the context immediately before that? It says, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. And it's talking about those who believe in Jesus Christ, Christians. Don't despise them. Why? For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. They will see the face of my Father. They may be little ones. They haven't done anything in themselves they haven't earned it, but because you, you can put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become part of his family. You become his little one. You become one whom he looks after, one whom he is the great shepherd. You're a sheep, and he's the shepherd. And you're able, therefore, to see the face of his Father in heaven. Now, if you're going to be a little one, then you've got to be like a little one. That's the thing. You know... Who is it that believes those who are like a child in their heart? Not like those who are hardened in their unbelief and sin and refuse to believe anything, but those like a child who gladly receive the simple gospel, the simple truth that if you put your faith in Christ and what he has done for you on the cross, he really did live. He really did take on human flesh. He really did die. And the dying was for the purpose of saving us from our sins, of paying for this sin on the cross. And then he rose again from the dead. He lives right now. He lives forevermore. The heart of a child believes these things. And if you believe these things, you become one of those little ones to whom God says you are blessed. That's how it happens. He'll pay for your sin. He has paid for the sin of his people. 
And he will also give you his perfect righteousness. That's the other part of the story, isn't it? And it's an important part for those who've already believed in Christ to understand too. Because you, you say that blessed are the pure in heart. I'm not so sure that I'm always pure in heart. And you say moment by moment, I will go to heaven, I won't. I will go to heaven, I won't. Even as sin flashes before your mind, and as we have these all too momentary flashes of holiness. No, it's not like that. Because you see, Christ took away our sin. He paid for it and he gives us his perfect righteousness. This great exchange, you see. And it is in that way that we become perfectly holy. It is in that way that we... How else could we possibly come into his presence? It's not by doing... You know, five out of the ten commandments, that's going to do it. He has pure eyes and to behold any sin whatsoever. It is because he makes us perfectly and truly holy in his sight. He gives us his holiness and makes it possible that we might be in his presence. That's the gospel. That's what we must believe. Secondly, we ought to pursue holiness. If we're given holiness, we yet pursue it. Hebrews 12.14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, if you didn't understand the rest of it, if you didn't understand the, 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 how that goes together with the gospel, you might get the idea that we earn our salvation. That's not what it's saying. But when we are given something, when we are given as a gift through faith, that's what it's, it's by, by grace alone, through faith alone, that we receive Christ. It's not something that we earn. It's something we receive as a gift. And having have such a gift, it's foolish then. And having tasted of this heavenly gift, having tasted of the beauty of holiness, and seen a glimpse of Christ and his, his glory, it's foolish to pursue anything else, isn't it? It's crazy. It makes no sense. If you've been living in squalor someplace, and someone in their great goodness and mercy on you, brings you into a a wonderful, clean, well-appointed house in a nice neighborhood, why would you then pursue the things that you've left behind? Would you not, in grateful thanksgiving, want to pursue these things that, that you've been given? Well, much, much more so in our holiness. That having been cleansed in Christ, that we ought to pursue holiness. We know that one day we'll not see the Lord without it. Yes, it's by grace that we'll be given these things. But if our great ambition, if the thing that we most want to do is to see the Lord, then surely it makes no sense. Surely our taste for sin is gone. Surely we would desire to pursue holiness. And we have every reason and every ability to do so in the Holy Spirit. This Spirit that fills us more and more. And what does He do with this Holy Spirit? He makes us want to pursue holiness. He makes us to love the things that one day we will so enjoy. Thirdly, and finally, as you might have guessed, with the elements of the Lord's table in front of us, we do see him in the Lord's Supper. I've, I've mentioned that we see him spiritually in the gospel. Now, that's a, an, a, not a pure intellectual 
seen, but it has a lot to do with that. It's what we hear in the word and what we understand in our mind and also in our hearts about Christ. We see him in these things. We hear about his birth. We understand about his sinless life and his death, a, a sacrificial death that he might die for sinners, and also that he rose again the third day, as seen by so many witnesses and proven by so many proofs. Yet we don't really see him with our eyes in that sense at all, right? In the word of God, we're not actually seeing these things. Yet funny enough, here in these elements, there are actually some physical things that we can see. Now, sort of, kind of, like the way that we saw in the physical face of Christ when he on this earth, that didn't really tell us much. There was no beauty in him. Rather pointed beyond, uh, in, in fact, even in the flesh, the focus was on the spiritual realities of what, who Christ was and, and what he did, what he said and what he did. Well, likewise, there isn't much in grape juice and bread. But as you cast your eyes on these things and as you experience the Lord's Supper, you are seeing something that points beyond itself to Christ. You know, it says in Luke twenty-two nineteen, And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, he said these two things, right? This is my body and do this in remembrance of me. Now, if this thing that we're about to do, this Lord's table, if it had no connection to Christ, if you couldn't see anything in these things and in some way see Christ, then, what, then this makes no sense at all. In fact, in our specific instructions on the Lord's Supper in, in 1 Corinthians 11, it is our command, it is a requirement that you're able to see Christ's body. It says, those who eat and drink in an unworthy manner, eat and drink judgment to himself, not discerning, not understanding, not being able to see the Lord's body. But if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in him, and you're regenerate and therefore have the Holy Spirit, then somehow you are able to see in these things with your eyes, mainly in your hearts, the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore you're able to see God. Most well, is this that we now turn. <clears throat>